1: Mike DeCourcy as I have always said, and I hope he doesn't get mad when I use this title for him, the dean of college basketball writers. I believe him to be, in print variation, the most authoritative voice and the most knowledgeable on college basketball, but of course also uh, with the Big Ten Network and a noted soccer fan. In addition to that, as we bring Mike deCourcy onto the program this morning, Mike, I know that You have always been a fan of the Pittsburgh Steelers. You and I have discussed that. You've mentioned it on the program before. Um, Wanted to give you the opportunity to let our listeners know, as somebody who has followed the Steelers for a very long time, uh, just what Franco Harris, who passed away this morning at the age of 72, what he meant not only to the Steelers organization, but I think truly in kind of representing the model or the mold of the Pittsburgh spirit as a city, if you will.
2: Yeah, Franco uh, was – it was interesting because he came to the team as a first-round draft choice who had not been a great performer in college. He played in a backfield at Penn State with another player named Lydell Mitchell, who was an All-American. I think he was a Heisman finalist. Franco was always kind of viewed as sort of an underachiever. He had a great build. He was six. He was over six feet. He weighed 230-some pounds but had a tailback speed. And when he came to the Steelers, there were a lot of people who wondered why they selected him. And he immediately transformed the franchise. I mean, Joe Green was the cornerstone of the, of the, uh, of the turnaround of the, of the, of the uh, 70s decade renaissance for the Steelers. But Franco was the one whose presence, whose arrival turned it around. Uh, Joe's first three years, I think they went 1-13, 5-9, and 6-8 and, nine and, six and eight in a 14-game season. And then and then uh, uh, Franco comes along and immediately they go eleven and three. He rushed for over a thousand yards, ten touchdowns, NFL Rookie of the Year, etc. And even Joe, I, I got a release yesterday, I think it was from the NFL Network, which is doing Franco Harris Friday evening at nine in their football life uh, football life series. And one of the quotes from Joe was that. He was he you know he represented the transformation. As soon as he walked in the door, we became the Pittsburgh Steelers, and um, it, it it was really like that. And he was really an important you know an important person for Pittsburgh. You have to understand what it was like to live in Pittsburgh in the seventies when the city was falling apart. I mean, the the steel industry was in absolute decay and crisis. And my father worked in the steel industry and the city was falling apart, and the Steelers were ascending to greatness, and they kept that city together. There's a book out now, and I can't remember the name of it, but it's just been released uh, about how the Steelers saved Pittsburgh, so to speak. There's a, you know, their theory is that, that that excellence that they represented really kept the city alive as it transformed away from the steel industry and into technology and education and medicine.
0: Again, Mike DeCorsi is with us. So obviously, a lot to get to with Mike, uh, Big Ten Network. You see him on there tonight. Purdue back in action as the number one team in the nation. Mike, if you look at the start for Purdue, um, you more impressed by what Zach Eadie's been able to do, kind of minutes wise, stay out of foul trouble, and put up you know pretty video game like numbers, or what they've gotten from their freshmen early on?
2: Oh, I think I think what Zach. Doing was it's probably maybe a half leap farther than we would have expected but he was on this track he was a he was a capable freshman he was a very fine sophomore and now he's an excellent junior so I think that from that standpoint although it's certainly an an amazing performance what he's delivering I don't think it's stunning it's it's just this is what happens when you get a talented basketball player with an excellent coach and coaching staff in a program that consistently makes its players better. And what, what Fletcher Lawyer and Braden Smith are doing is amazing, and especially Braden. And I, I, I'm not at all surprised by Fletcher's success. Uh, uh, Fletcher comes in from a basketball family. His father was an NBA coach and scout, is an NBA coach, uh, scout now, I believe uh his brother foster was uh really a high school superstar in michigan uh but not very tall and he, i think foster is probably 5'11" 6 feet at, at most and didn't have the quickness to quite make his basketball skill work in in a league like the big 10 so he goes to michigan state and he's a backup and kind of struggles a little bit and then he goes to Davidson, where his size is not as, as much of an impediment, and he's a All Atlantic Ten player. And Fletcher comes in at six four, so I expected him to be a good freshman uh, because I knew he was well trained. But I don't know that I expected him to be produced second leading scorer. Braden, for me, is the revelation because he was not—you know—he's not like a McDonald's All American guy, and you're asking him to take over a program that wanted to contend for the Big Ten title. They had everything else in place. Uh, Brandon Newman, Ethan Morton, Mason Gillis, Trey Kaufman, uh, Caleb First. All those guys were already there, and, of course, Zach. And so there was everything in place to be a contender for the Big Ten title, but they didn't have a point guard. And I remember asking uh, Matt Painter at Media Day, you know, what are you doing there? What, what's Because I hadn't had the opportunity to go up and see him practice. or And he said, so, we're fine. Braden Smith's going to be really, really good. And uh, and he has been all of that and more.
0: When you look at Purdue right now, and again, Mike DeCorsi joins us here on the Payless Liquors Hotline. his work at Sporting News and on Big Ten Network. Uh, obviously, from a resume standpoint, they deserve to be the number one team in the nation. I, I think there's little doubt to that. Do you view them as like a? I'm making a list of national title contenders, and they're in the top two, three, four. Like, how do you view them? I guess as you project them uh, throughout the Big Ten season and into the month of March and beyond
2: I think it's hard to do that at this point if you look at the schedule mostly because of the way the challenge series worked out uh you know they they have had um you know they they have had the opportunity to play some some very capable teams I think going to uh uh going out to to, to Portland was really important for them uh because you know they got they got Florida State in the challenge, so that didn't really help that much. But they go out to Portland and they play Gonzaga, Duke, West Virginia. That's three teams, That two of them which will be in competition with them seating wise and one of which will, I believe, be a, an NCAA tournament team for sure. And they got all that work done in one weekend, so to speak. Uh, so that that was really important for them because if they hadn't gone to Portland in that tournament, I'm not sure that they would have had the level of of conquest to this point that would say uh, that they could be up there in the seedings. They, you know, they, or the rankings, I guess, if that matters to you. Uh, But in terms of assessing what they're capable of relative to the national championship, I think that still remains to be seen. I mean, a year ago, there are certain qualities that you have to have. Uh, Nobody's won this thing without uh, a, a, a number of NBA players, two, three, somewhere in there. And I don't know yet uh, whether or not Purdue has that. Uh, And if you don't have that, you basically would have to break every barrier that's been erected to that championship since, you know, maybe 1950 or whatever. So I think that it's, it's hard to project at that point. Um, But we'll see how, how, you know, how those players develop in big 10 competition, how they handle it. I think there's no question that they can contend for the Big Ten title and if, that if you win this Big Ten title with the non-conference resume that Purdue already has, uh, there's no question. If, they, if they're if they Big Ten champions, they they are a number one seed, I can tell you that right now. Uh, because uh, with what they did in non-conference and then you add that to it, I just don't see any way they wouldn't be.
1: Mike, when you look at, for example, Mike DiCorsi is our guest on the Payless Siggers Hotline. We've talked a lot about with the Colts. I don't think the Colts issue is necessarily recognizing talent. It's recognizing, and this is the real trick for everybody, recognizing how to assemble talent together as a unit. Is Matt Painter as good as we have in college basketball at getting guys to buy into a team concept and understand their role and thus then being able to, to take those pieces into the jigsaw puzzle? Because to me, it seems like he has guys on his roster that seemingly probably could maybe get more minutes or higher roles elsewhere, but are can but are thrilled with their role with Purdue to ascending the basketball program, and that to me is the true trick of a coach. You agree?
2: Yeah, I think in this day, what Matt's doing is almost singular. Uh, it, it's it's amazing that that. He has, you know, Brandon Newman coming off of last year would be a good example. He did not get a lot, you know, of all the guys who were sort of in that ten man mix or something. I think he probably ranked ninth or tenth in minutes, and that would be a, a, a player that a lot of places would just say, "Okay, I'll go somewhere else and I'll get run and I'll get my shots and I'll, you know, and, and all of that." They didn't. They didn't lose anybody. I mean, they lost the guys that were either ready to graduate or. Uh, in the case of Jaden, ready to go to the NBA and be a top four pick. Uh, that, that's just, like I said, it's almost unprecedented in today's college basketball for you to be able to keep a team like that intact. Uh, and, and that's, yeah, Matt is, Matt is a, a special person, a special coach. He does an amazing job with that program and has for a long time. <laughs> and he, and he's, He's one of those coaches who understands himself really well. And I I still remember, I think it was maybe in some ways, at least in terms of its reflection to the public, it was, I think it was 2013 or 2014 media day when he came to, to, uh, to Chicago and stood up and said, look, I picked these players and it didn't work. And they had just finished, I think five and 13 in the league. And he said, it's on me. And I'm going to go out and I'm going to get Purdue guys. And he went out and you know and he, he continued over the next now eight to nine years to just continue to get more and more guys like this that are invested in being boilers and that continue to push the program forward.
0: At TSN Mike on Twitter, Mike DeCorsi from Sporting News joining us here on the Payless Liquors Hotline. Shits and Gears to Bloomington, Mike. Um, just how would you characterize the start for IU? And did we put too much stock into a team that, you know, if they don't make some wild run in the final eight minutes of that Michigan game in the Big Ten tournament, they probably don't make the NCAA tournament last season. We probably view Mike Woodson's first year in a much different light. Um, just your general thoughts on IU so far.
2: I think they've been the unluckiest team in America, Kevin. Uh, I, I I mean, who else out there has had three starters miss games, uh, and and not just you know not just the guy who you know set screens, but both of your point guards and your star have all missed games now. Uh, that's, that's your problem. That's why and that and, and happened not, again, not to coincide with your Elons uh, uh, or your uh, your early buy games, but at Rutgers, Arizona Neutral, a home game against Nebraska, uh, and then uh, a road game at Kansas. And, in your, and you're not whole for any of those games. Uh, that's that's brutal. I mean, I I don't think that one can look at this team and say they're underachieving because they aren't whole and haven't been for th- almost three weeks now. Uh, if, if I took the if I took uh, the number of games they've lost, so they lost three from Jalen, I think one from uh, now two from Xavier uh, and one from Trace. If I took that that number of games away from you know three top scorers on any team in America and put them through that gauntlet that indiana went through i don't know many teams that aren't going one and three i i, I don't know that i don't know there be any uh so i don't i i'm not bothered by where they are i think the problem is can they get healthy and whole and then and then go out and do and and then go out and make up for a lot of lost time on on who they wanted to be as a team
1: even if they were 100% healthy mike The one concern I would have for Indiana, and I want you to talk me off this ledge, is I don't know that they have the consistent outside shooting. Even when Xavier Johnson was healthy, and I think he's a very good player, but he has a little John Starks in him to me where on the nights he's good, he's really good, and on the nights he struggles, he can hurt you a little bit. But it just doesn't seem like Indiana versus other teams I see has necessarily – the ball rotation on the perimeter to be able to consistently shoot from the outside and draw some pressure off of Trace Jackson Davis a little bit. Uh, am I being too critical?
2: Well, I th- I, again, I don't think that you're seeing any – what, what you're seeing isn't their their fun- full functionality. How they want to play hasn't been available for, as I said, uh, three weeks now, almost it'll be three weeks on Saturday since they played the Rutgers game. It hasn't been there. I mean, they're shooting 36.3% as a team from three-point range. They've got Exit, 37. Uh, Miller cop is hitting nearly 46. Uh, Tamar is hitting nearly 42. Uh, so To me, and, 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 and Jalen's hitting nearly 36. So those are all good numbers. And to me, the big concern about them as a shooting team was, would Miller play under pressure? He, w- he had a confidence problem for his entire college career. Last year he did, all his years at Northwestern, it was always you know the confidence problem. And now he has persisted through the loss of those guys, not getting the high-quality shots that you'd want him to get uh, because the ball rotated, because Trace got doubled, and all that kind of stuff. He's, he's continued to make shots. He made shots in that Arizona game when they needed to have them or they were going to lose by 40. Uh, He made shots at Rutgers when nobody else could put the ball in the bucket at all. Uh, He made shots last night when, uh, again, you you, you were down two starters. Now, I know it's Elon, but you're down two starters, and he's still making shots. I I don't have that great concern about that element as long as he continues to play like that. And he's been – I mean, he hasn't had many down games. And every shooter has down games. Steph Curry has down games. But I haven't seen many from Miller and – I don't, as I said, given that a lot of those nights, uh, the good nights for him, happened on nights when they were not themselves. I think that that's a really good sign in that department.
0: Mike, last one for me, and again, Mike DeCorsi, Sporting News, Big Ten Network, with us here on the Payless Lakers Hotline. Uh, Any insight into the hiring of Charlie Baker as the new NCAA president? Obviously. Uh, takes over an organization that's been heavily, heavily scrutinized. Uh, Massachusetts governor is his most recent background, so I think there was appeal, certainly from a legislation standpoint, to you know try and get someone with that background. Um, what did you think of that hire?
2: Yeah, it, it kind of left me a little cold. Uh, I, I, but I understand why it went in that direction. I did an article. Back in May, I think it was, I talked to eight or nine people who have been either in or around college athletics from Jay Billis to Oklahoma athletic director Joe Castiglione to Pitt athletic director Heather Like and uh, and all kinds of different people who and, and just basically asked them, okay, what kind of person should they get? What kind of qualifications should that person have? And the funny thing was, I don't think anybody brought up a politician. That's the you know, I talked to like nine different people and allowed them to just, you know, have their say. And I don't think anybody said, oh, yeah, we're going to go get a sitting governor or a retire or a a exiting governor. Uh, That one took I I think it took us all by surprise. I I understand the importance of of how legislation could help them uh, in in regards to uh, I think the last frontier for college athletics is. Do the do the athletes become employees? And I I really believe and there's a very strong uh, uh, group of people on the other side of this issue. I I really believe it just that that there's no way that's good for for college athletics if it comes to that, uh, that the employer employee relationship is not as healthy as the student athlete relationship with the university, if we want to call it that. I just don't I, I don't think that that's where it needs to go or where it should go. And I think if they could get certain elements of legislation in, that they could keep it from being that. Uh, and I think that's kind of why he was hired, and we'll see whether or not he can he can successfully get something you know through Congress and through the president's desk.:
1: uh, Mike, have you come down from the cloud that I know you were on and watching the World Cup final?
2: Oh my, it was amazing. It, it, what a, what a magnificent game. I, I, I my, my, my editor uh, was in contact with me through the game and, you know, and it made. remember it being a great game made it a really harder day for me because <laughs> like I had the messy story written uh, at halftime, like, and all I had to do was basically put in the final score. And then of course, all of a sudden the whole game gets thrown up in the air with the two late French French goals Uh and so it made it a harder day for me, but it was worth it because the game was just spectacular. But my editor says to me, OK, for the second piece we want you to do, uh, is this the greatest World Cup final ever? And as I sat down to write my, my lead, I said, that's too limiting. Like, it, it, it's, it, Is it the greatest World Cup game? That's too limiting. I think it, it immediately becomes part of that conversation when you talk about 92, the Leightner shot, Kentucky do." or uh, what I think was the best Super Bowl 43 Steelers over Cardinals or the triple overtime Celtics-Suns game in the 76 NBA Finals or uh, the 99 Champions League when uh, uh, Manchester United came back from two goals down in the, like, the final minute and a half or whatever it was. That, those, those games is where this game belongs. The, the best World Cup final, yeah, that's easy. It's, you know, how does it fit into the greatest games ever played in any sport? And I think it absolutely belonged in that conversation.
1: Just remember, Mike, when you see the aerials of Buenos Aires, just remember that is 200,000 people fewer than apparently were in Nashville for the NFL draft, according to the NFL. (laughs) Don't forget it. (laughs) Don't forget it. Now we have perspective. (laughs) There
0: you go. (laughs) Mike, happy holidays if you're traveling this week. Safe travels, and uh, always
2: enjoy your insight. Thank you very much. Happy holidays to everybody in Indianapolis, all my friends here. I hope you guys have a great weekend.